Hey there, it's Nathan with BizCast NH. This week, we're going to listen back to a conversation originally aired in April of 2022 we had with Rod Harl from Alien Candles out of Milford. They are one of our Business of the Year winners this year, and we are so excited for them. So we're rerunning a great episode. Enjoy this week. Our guest this week is Rod Harl. Rod is currently president and CEO of Aileen Candles, a company he and an investor group acquired in 2008. Prior to acquiring Aileen, Rod co-founded Brandwise Inc., a pioneer provider of software to independent retail chains, leading the company's operations and product management through its growth from two to more than 40 employees, including three M&A transactions. Rod spent several years with pharmaceutical manufacturer Merck and Company, working on a variety of startup and technology transfer projects for the company's vaccine business. Rod also completed assignments with the Dow Chemical Company and Hatch Company. Rod is an active member of Young President's organization, where he served in numerous roles, including chapter chair for the New England chapter, and was the gold chair for a new Seacoast integrated chapter founded in 2021. Rod holds a dual Bachelor of Science degree in chemistry and chemical engineering, highest honors from the University of California, Berkeley, and an MBA from Harvard Business School. He is no slouch, and he is here today. Rod, thanks for joining us. Um, There are a lot of candle companies out there. Why is Aileen different? Let's just start with that. Well, thanks, Nathan. So Aileen's probably the biggest candle company you will never hear of. I love uh, that. So we're going to find out what that means. <laughs> <laughs> so as a contract manufacturer, none of the products you'll find in stores will ever bear our name. So last year was actually a, uh, a considerable milestone for us. We just passed uh, 100 million candles made uh, made in a single year. So that's a that's a top tick. Um, uh, the pandemic certainly uh, put some tailwind behind us in terms of um, home fragrance being consumed. Mm in the home, mm-hmm. right? So when everybody's at home, that they're trying to get away from that smell of, uh, <laughs> of being at home all the time. Uh, so dogs can, and children. Dogs and, and uh, I'm sure there are spouses in there too. <laughs> <laughs> Last night's meal. And, and I guess it, through all of my research, I guess I just didn't realize this. Um, but as you said, you're not branding any candle that's out there. You're making all, all the candles that you make are for other Candle companies. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, but brands are our customers. So a brand will come to us and say, "I should say you're not branding with with Aileen on the label, correct. As, as you said." So correct. that is that is really really interesting to me. And I so go ahead and, and tell us more. Yeah. So if a brand, major brand, wants mm-hmm. to instantiate themselves into candles, mm. they need to work with uh, a fragrance house mm-hmm. to come up with the fragrances and that tell that story. And then they would come to us and say. We like this fragrance. We like these containers. We like this uh, aesthetic um, way where we want to show up in the marketplace, and then mm-hmm. we will work to create that. Mm-hmm. Now, the candle industry runs such a gamut from mom and pop operations that are working craft shows um, and building small brands there up to, you know, Yankee Candle that mm-hmm. people all know. Can you talk about how Aileen got its start? And how did it grow into this candle powerhouse, as it were? <laughs> Is that almost a pun? Candle powerhouse? I tried. I don't yeah, think I quite almost, got almost, there. But. I'll have to add that to the list of uh, funny candle jokes that, that I keep on my desktop. Um, so uh, the company actually started in 1995 here in New Hampshire. 
uh, Paul and Nancy Amato. Uh, so if you're familiar in Milford with the uh, Amato Center for the Performing Arts, they helped create that in concert with the Boys and Girls Club, which is a passion project for them uh, for, for many years. Uh, but they formed that uh, formed Aileen. Uh, Paul was actually working for Crabtree and Evelyn, uh, if you remember that brand, mm-hmm. Uh, yes. mm-hmm. which was uh, from his hometown in Connecticut. Uh, worked with Crabtree and was doing sourcing of candle and other products um, for that business. So he realized that there were times during the year where uh, it was easy to get candle capacity, like April, uh, not a busy time for uh, candle makers, but come fall and holiday, uh, it was very difficult to find somebody who had capacity. So he decided to make a dedicated contract candle manufacturer. And starting here in um, uh, Milford in the edge of um, uh, the, the Sahigan Valley, he was in a couple different locations, um, grew it to uh, about 74 employees when we crossed paths, um, Paul, myself, and my business partner, Ted Goldberg, uh, we came to an agreement at the end of 2008, uh, and Ted and myself and the investor group bought the company. Uh, since that time, we've grown to uh, two facilities. We actually just opened a third non-candle facility, our first expansion out of candles. We did that in 2020, uh, and now have about 500 year-round employees across um, New Hampshire, uh, New York, Pennsylvania, and Ohio. Wow. So why, what attracted you, first of all, how did you come across the path of ailing candles? Mm-hmm. And then what made you want to buy a candle company? I love candles. Really? No, that's actually not. <laughs> <laughs> that's, it's always a good one. Um, that's but, right up there with candle power <laughs> house thing. Uh, um, no, so Ted and I had worked together um, on, uh, actually on Brandwise, as you mentioned there in the intro. Mm-hmm. And in 2005, 2006, um, we exited that, went our separate ways, reconnected in 2000. Seven and said, uh, look, we, we have very different skill sets. Um, he's from Yonkers, New York, uh, knows every yet on the island, um, <laughs> and is you know very outgoing, very gregarious guy. I'm, I got a science background. I'm mm-hmm. kind of the operator. I'm the inside guy. And we thought that was a complementary skill set. So we said, Let, let's do something. Um, we spent 2008 then looking for something to buy. Uh, we looked at thousands of opportunities. We asked for 180 Uh, write-ups or books. We talked with 50 intermediaries. Uh, We talked with 20 owners, wrote eight LOIs. Two of them were real, that we wanted the business. And we closed on Aileen, December 30th, 2008. So what made Aileen stand out as the, I mean, out of all the different businesses you looked at, why was this one you thought most promising with the skill sets that you had? Yeah, great question. So it actually, um, I often say it's a deal that could close. And when you uh, are two individuals who are looking for something um, and want to own and run it. It's not like you go to the business store and have a selection of <laughs> dozens of options, right? If only. If, if only. If only there were one store. Uh, so we probably had um, a handful of businesses that we could have closed on. Uh, Aileen was a unique fit because Ted had owned and run the largest independent rep exhibitor at the New York Gift Show for almost 20 years. Um, and Brandwise was actually focused on the gift and home accessory market. So we had looked at military training devices. We looked at uh, specialty monomers for contact lenses. We looked at, you know, on and on. And turns out Ted could go out and uh, sell more product in an industry he knew well. 
and it was a tangible product for me. I, I can be an operator and I, I like manufacturing. So, uh, Aileen really worked out well for us. Nice. Um, let's dig into maybe operations for just a second here, though. You obviously, as you said, we said, have a chemistry and chemical engineering background. Um, is, does that, I mean, you're obviously a strategist and an entrepreneur and you're thinking a lot bigger than day to day, but does your, uh, does that background come into play for the manufacturing of candles? I guess I know nothing Mm -hmm. about, you know, is it just wax? Is there more to it? You know, uh, tell us a little bit about the inside of, you know, operations as it were. Yeah, sure. That's another great question. So uh, when I left the pharmaceutical industry in 1998, I thought I was done with, with science. Um, and I, that was dot-com era. Um, mm. I didn't know software uh, any more than anybody else did mm-hmm. at that point, um, and, and but probably less. Uh, but the fact is, you know, the gentleman who runs our R&D operation, he's, uh, he, he's a chemist. We, have, uh, we recently hired a PhD here in New Hampshire, uh, and she, she's uh, she an incredible compliment. We have, um, I think, all told, you know, low double digits of chemistry and chemical engineers on staff. Uh, that's in addition to, to mechanical engineers you need to run the factory. Sure, sure, yeah. But sure, candles, you just like you may have done in summer camp or whatnot, you <laughs> heat wax, it's molten, you pour it into a, uh, pour it into a container, and you let it cool. Um, now, we wrap a lot more science around that. Mm-hmm. And I like to say uh, you know, brands come to us because 100% of our candles are intended to be set on fire in someone's home. Um, right, so that's slightly a, jarring to say that, but yes, absolutely. So if, right. you, make, if you make 100 million of them, uh-huh. you say, oh, you know what? Maybe all but one out of 10,000 are really good, mm. uh, and we'll just have one bad one. Even one out of a million in a 100 million unit business, that mm. means you got 100 units out there that could be bad in someone's home. Mm-hmm. So you ju- you just you really have to have a, a, a zero tolerance. Uh, and so there's a lot of science that goes into making the candle look good and mm-hmm. throw fragrance well and melt appropriately. All that's aesthetic features. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a lot of science that goes into the testing. And if we drove, uh, you know, not six miles from here to our, our labs in Milford, um, I'd walk you down aisles of candles burning in a very tightly controlled environment where HVAC comes in and the air changes mm-hmm. are mm-hmm. Uh, more than six times uh, 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 an hour and it makes, lets us burn thousands of candles, but every one of those thinks it's burning by itself in someone's house. And that way we can get consistent data, create a system that's safe and operates uh, or, or performs as a consumer would want to see in their house. Nice, nice. We, um, we've talked a little bit about you and about candle making and, and kind of, you know, set, I would say, a foundation. Um, tell us, though, what it's like for your employees to work at Alien Candles um, and what you're doing to sustain a, 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 the particular culture there and, and um, keep your workforce happy and, and engaged. Yeah, awesome. I'm, I'm so glad you asked that. Um, not easy being a manufacturer in the United States. Mm. Maybe it's not easy being a manufacturer in, anywhere. I just don't know that, uh, well, what it's like in other parts of the world. But uh, we're competing for people. Mm. Uh, people can go to... They can go to Market Basket, or they can go to uh, the manufacturer down the road, or they can go to retail. Uh, they can go elsewhere in Nashua, Manchester. So we need to provide a culture to, for folks that is unique. It's different. That um, gives them something that they're not going to have uh, in other parts of the world. It was in 2016 we brought in um, a concept called conscious leadership into the business. Now, in Milford at the time, we had a, 
a unique cultural problem. We had some some bad management hires uh, that precipitated all sorts of ugliness in the business, and we we brought this in almost as radical medicine. Uh, but what it does is introduce to uh, employees, and we went very deliberately all the way to the factory floor, which is not commonly done uh, with with this basket of practices. But we brought the concepts of um, uh, speaking candidly, but leading with your heart, mm. right? So that you don't say, uh, you're an idiot, I'm being candid, right? And you stand behind that shield. No, we want you to say, look, I care deeply about you, so I'm going to share with you how that makes me feel. But mm. at the same time, I have my exactly 100% responsibility for everything around me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, it doesn't mean you take more than your responsibility and you hero somebody who then becomes a victim, uh, but it also doesn't mean, you know what, I feel like taking 80% of my responsibility today. You, you don't get that option. Uh, so bringing this in and, and putting down to um, all, through all levels of the organization, these resources that we as professionals may enjoy, we'll hear, a, you know, we'll hear an expensive speaker at a, at a conference or an event, and we'll walk away with some interesting things. That's thoughtful, and we appreciate that. But if you take that same resource and put them in a room with, uh, with 30 people who make seventeen fifty an hour, now you're changing lives. Um, and these are people who may never have an interaction like that through any other vehicle. Um, we see them take these techniques or these tools that many of us take for granted. They take them into the small communities around our factories, both here and in Ohio. Uh, and they bring these stories back. They say, oh, I went to Thanksgiving dinner. And uh, every year, the patriarch um, makes fun of the son-in-law who sells insurance, right? And it's <laughs> awkward for everyone, and the guy's doing great, but it's it's just really unpleasant. And one December, the daughter came back and said, hey, uh, I actually use these tools to approach my father and diffuse this holiday situation. She said, look, I know you love your family dearly, but you may not realize that this is how you're being heard. And this is, these are tools that we, again, as professionals, we may take for granted. But she ended up changing that family dynamic of a 30-person dinner probably forever. And as I think about what is our role as a manufacturer, mm-hmm. you know, there were years ago where there was a march to $15 an hour and everybody needs to pay 15. Mm. And the mark, I subscribe to the market, will set what we need to pay. And right. we're, indeed, we're in that, range, uh, in that range now. But of all the things we can give to people, do we give them $2 more an hour, which is $4,000 a year, do we give them that? Or do we give them skills where they can shape the issues in these com- in communities where we do have a lot of employees drawn from. That is where I think we need to have uh, have action. I'd love to see other other manufacturers take that same approach. Mm-hmm. And what so. kind of a change did you see in the culture moving forward? Uh, how, how well did employees adapt to it? How much engagement did you get from them with these changes? Because change, even positive, is hard. <laughs> Absolutely. It, and it's, it's, it's a journey. It's still a journey. Um, I, I would say where we are today in New Hampshire I, I mean, clearly 180 degrees from where we were, but the it took time to develop trust, um, trust across layers of management, trust amongst peers. But we had by having a common language, and you can obviously use different tool sets to have a, a common language. By having a common language, it enabled people to um, communicate safely their own 
their own viewpoint, and maybe even reach out a little bit. So one of the principles is, um, uh, and you'll hear people say this in the factory, well, the story I'm making mm-hmm. up is, right? So the story you're making up is the set of facts mm. that use your narrative versus what a, a, an impartial camera would uh, capture. So they say, okay, the story I'm making up is, uh, Matt, you're wearing a, 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 a blue sweater, and it's, uh, excuse me, you're, the, the facts are you're wearing a blue sweater. The story I make up is it was really cold this morning, right? Now, really cold is an opinion, right? It, it may be a perfect day for you. Um, but I'll agree. It was really cold. Yeah, yeah, it, was, <laughs> it's, it's, it, it was quite a shock. Um, but doing that in a factory situation, the, the, the facts are I saw you ignore this problem on the manufacturing line. The story I make up is you don't care. So what we, what we like to do is give people the chance to tell what the opposite of their story is. So if I'm making up a story, Matt, you're wearing a blue sweater. Uh, it's, uh, facts are you're wearing a blue sweater. The story I make up is cold today. Um, maybe, maybe it actually wasn't cold. Maybe it was a beautiful day, and you just happen to like that sweater. Applied to a manufacturing situation, mm-hmm. uh, where you end up is – it lowers the temperature in the factory because people do not assume what is true. And it enables two people to, to interact um, in, a, uh, in a much more mild way. The example I heard once in our Ohio factory was uh, there was a, an individual who was responsible for uh, quality. And they were at a point in the line, they were looking at the, 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 um, at, at the product, and they picked it up and they, they were in, inspecting it and drawing a judgment. Well, clearly at the other end of the line, the, the supervisor saw what was going on. They start marching down and they just mm. know that they're in trouble and they're, they're gearing for a fight. Well, in the span of that, of that eight seconds where they had to walk down to interact, they went through this. What's the story I'm making up? They're making up that there's a problem. Oh, they're making up this. They're making up this. By the time they got to the interaction, one of the individuals said, you know what? I know exactly what you're going to say and here's how I'm seeing it. And they said, okay, that's great. And they put that issue, is, is, issue um, to bed without, without a problem, without a conflict. So what we end up seeing, Matt, is uh, there's less conflict that needs to rise to HR, less drama that goes in the factory. Um, the people who show up at work and, and come to help make candles, uh, they have a better experience, a more positive experience. They're treated with respect. Uh, we teach people to make eye contact as a supervisor and to be, um, as we say, masters of appreciation. So we were talking about this huge sea change that you had in culture. Um, and it's a it's a powerful thing to do, and it has a, a lot of repercussions. So can you talk about, you know, in addition to just improving the overall culture, working culture that you have there, what were the things that you saw in terms of retention rates, um, the ability to attract new talent uh, and on profitabil- profitability and uh, productivity. Were there impacts in these areas? I would love to tell you, Matt, that I have a perfect dashboard that can, all the needles moved in concert once, once we started doing this. Um, I, I can't do that. Um, do I believe our retention rate is better than it would have been? Absolutely. Uh, do we know unquestionably as we survey employees coming in, why did you come to Elaine? They say, I saw your 
X. I saw your story on conscious leadership. I had somebody who worked here and said this was an amazing place to work. Um, so we get a lot of anecdotal evidence. Um, honestly, the 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 um, uh, work that you've done at, uh, at at the magazine, we tout that as being one of New Hampshire's um, you know best places to work. Yes, you made our and best companies to work for list. I We're, think. Congratulations. Twice now? We're, t- we're two for two. Nice. Uh, so no, nice. extremely appreciative. But that's that kind of publicity is incredibly impactful uh, to bring people in. And once they once they interview and they meet you know, they meet with whom they're working, um, we see that that is where the the, the impact is felt. Interesting. Um, I've got a I've got a question here for you. Someone recently uh, on a previous episode said uh, they they quoted Peter Drucker and they said. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. That's, you know, that famous quote from Peter Drucker. And I've been thinking about it in so many different ways. Um, and I wonder, uh, especially with the culture that you have, that you have uh, sort of, we'll say, put in place, as it were, at Aileen, um, what do you think about that phrase? And Because um, you are an investor. You are a strategist. You have to have strategies for growth and a lot of other things. How do you either balance that or is one indeed eating the other? Yeah, that's a great question, um, and I, I've never got my head completely around that quote. I know you because, could right? you could split it around and move it around, and you could, you could make what you want out of it. But right. yeah, yeah. So I I look at it as culture enables enables you to do so many other things. So if you have a bad culture and a fantastic strategy, in fact, um, I don't want to invoke a, a political topic uh, out of school, but uh, Russia had a strategy, mm-hmm. and they don't have a culture. They don't have alignment. They don't. Mm-hmm. And I'm not advocating that position. Certainly, nope, nope. you're just using it as, as an example, a very um, valid example. But in contrast, you, the Ukrainians have an amazing culture. Mm-hmm. They're passionate. They care what they're right. doing, and they're able to obviously over. Uh, I don't want to say overcome. I don't want to tell the end of the story while it's playing, but. Mm or guess at the end of the story while it's playing. But you see these differences of power where indeed in that part of the world, yeah, culture's eating strategy for lunch. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But I think for for us, it really opens the door to a number of other opportunities. Mm -hmm. Uh, As I said, we we opened in 2020, actually our our third factory, we're making a a plug-in diffuser bulb. So you'll see those, Uh, sometimes you see in the grocery store, making a a different brand, but... uh, but that's enabling us to to go into that with um, a number of experienced people transferring over, running that factory, and they're doing a fantastic job. And let's talk about all this growth. So first of all, I just want to <laughs> understand more the customer base. So you know, you're, it's private label, but what is your typical customer look like? Who is coming to you to make products? Great. So uh, as I said, brands are our customers, and if. You know, for the for the the boutique offering, which we make entirely here in New Hampshire, if we can get them up to see our factory and walk through the labs, um, talk with the people, that's our best sales tool. And they say, yes, I trust you with my brand. Uh, it may be uh, a boutique brand that you see in a furniture store or a gift and home store uh, that could have a retail point from uh, $30 to $100, uh, maybe sometimes less. Uh, it could be a large re- retailer with their own house brand mm. that would retail from, you know, as a ticket price, maybe $10 or $12 up to 30 mm-hmm. um, It could be a cosmetic business that makes a candle as a uh, gift with purchase. So something, if you, uh, you, sure. you buy the $100 cosmetic set, we'll give you a candle that's of, of um, one of their top fragrances. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we... 
uh, are uniquely positioned here being four hours drive from New York. Mm. Uh, so it's, a, it's an easy day trip up for people who are working projects there. So we, we've done well with uh, uh, fashion and cosmetic business out, out of the city. Interesting. Your, um, your background, speaking of, of projects, your background, as you said, um, you have that pharmaceutical uh, manufacturing um, background and, and chemical and, and chemistry. Um, tell us, it, and this is a little bit of a pivot in terms of what I want to hear about, but just tell us some, about some of that past experience and what are those, some of more of the exciting or interesting projects that you've been involved with, with past, um, past endeavors. Wow, great. Um, so launching back into when I, uh, when I wore steel-toed boots and, yeah. and uh, <laughs> uh, laundered white uh, see-through clothes in the factory area. Uh, so I, I did work, um, I, I did a sterile processing project in Melbourne, Australia, where we worked with um, uh, a, it was then called Commonwealth Serum Laboratories, uh, CSL Limited out, out of Melbourne. Um, we made a rest of world vaccine. So we combined two uh, antigens from uh, Merck, which is the company I was working for, mm-hmm. as a Hep B and a, um, uh, another p- pediatric vaccine, wow. combined it with diphtheria tetanus pertussis, or DTP, mm-hmm. which we all get in the U.S., a little different form there. Um, so I worked on that. That was the last project I worked on. Spent about two and a half years working on hepatitis B. It's a third-generation Product for Merck, uh, made in yeast, and the yeast would turn out pink. Uh, it was all genetically engineered to produce uh, to produce the product. Uh-huh. Uh, but I worked downstream, so uh, we'd get these frozen bags of yeast that looked like um, I don't know, almost like suitcases, and you'd put it in a water bath and then push it through a homogenizer, like from the dairy industry, and blow these cells up, and you go through uh, you know eight or ten steps to isolate down just this one protein ball that that you'd put in two syringes and put in kids. Who wow. knew? From that to candles. <laughs> <I know>. uh, <laughs> that, it's a natural that progression, a of course, right? But I could not ask because you have such an interesting background. Um, it, but, and, and since we're, you know, since we pivoted already, um, are you, are you a New Hampshire native? Are you, where are you from huh. and where did you grow up? And, and who was, who was Rod when he was growing up as it were? Oh, that's funny. You're, you're not going to believe it. So I grew up in Iowa. Oh, yeah. wow. And okay, after, a little bit different than New Hampshire, perhaps? After 18 years, I f- figured out we were f- free to leave. Uh, <laughs> you weren't chained so, to no, anything. That's no. good. That's good. Um, and then I went to school on the West Coast, and that was really to get, get into uh, uh, a different area than mm-hmm. Iowa. Um, as far as being comparable to New Hampshire, yeah, I was driving down here today. I was thinking how similar, um, in many ways, the states are. I, you know, again, reaching... Maybe you pivoted. I'll pivot a little. Hey, do it. Um, Go for it. But I think there's a reason why <laughs> Iowa and New Hampshire are the first two states that participate in the, mm. you know, in in our presidential election. Process. Sure. Because the people they care. Now, one might say, well, they have time, right? <laughs> there's, there's nothing else to do. <laughs> uh, but you know, I see that here in New Hampshire now, and the, the primary. I grew up with it in the you know caucus state in Iowa. Mm-hmm. Uh, but people invest so much time to go meet these candidates, and they really take that that job seriously. And I think I think there's a reason why both those states end up uh, end up on the map. Interesting, interesting. So speaking of putting things on the map, I'm going to go a bit bit more. Are back you pivoting the, too? I'm pivoting too. Yes, I, I still yes. want to go into this growth because it's such a success story. I mean, obviously, Aileen was doing well, mm-hmm. but you brought the company to a whole different level, um, and has 
really expanded operations and the reach. What were some, what are some of the strategic decisions you made that helped to launch it to this level? Yeah, that's great. So, um, I know Paul may be listening to this someday, so I, I <laughs> have to watch, watch my words. And, and, and we're still good friends. We're still partners um, mm-hmm. uh, on, uh, on, on some elements. Um, and I think the world of what Paul created, if Paul were here, I think he would say he's really good at taking a business from nothing to $15 million in revenue. Um, and I wouldn't disagree, right? He scraped together uh, a fantastic business. Uh, there does come a point where, and he would see would agree with this, where you make different spending decisions, different um, empowerment decisions for people around you, uh, and that is uncomfortable. I remember in grad school seeing the the histogram of the number of businesses with rooftops, and let's, back in the in those days, late '90s, there were video stores, right, Blockbuster, local, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, there were. Number of stores or a number of businesses that had one store, uh, a little bit smaller number that had two, a little bit smaller that had three, almost none had four. And then if you looked at five, six, seven, and you start to see the count go up again. And the conclusion I was reaching is there's a scaling effect, and the solo entrepreneur can only manage so much when they're doing every job, right? So in growing a business out of you know out of a small size. Uh, the ability to start delegating, to trust people, to put procedures in place, to document things. Uh, good news, bad news, I had the ability to do that and a mentality to do that. Um, and so that was new to people, but a lot of people will gravitate to it, and then we start growing again. But as far as some of the strategic decisions, uh, I mean, you hear this a lot, and uh, I, I guess the older I get, the more I find it's true. It, you really need to put the right people in the right seats uh, and you may have the right people in the wrong seats, and we had that case. And we still always move people around if we feel like uh, something's outgrowing them or it's just not not the right fit. So I'd rather, absolutely rather, um, find a perfect home for somebody. Uh, but getting getting the right team, investing in strong people, and here we are in uh, 2022. We had a year last year that was still one of our, our most significant growth years on a percentage basis, absolutely on a dollar basis, but percentage basis, but we didn't make more money. Um, raw material prices, labor mm. costs. We did some things poorly. Right. We made some mistakes. But what's the first answer to that? Some people say, oh, you got to really grab on tight and you got to cut costs and so forth so you can make money. No, we hire. Hire a bunch of people. Hire more great people. Make this business easier to run. And that's what we've been doing here for it's March as we're recording this. Uh, we really set that tone probably six months ago. And because of our seasonality, we, don't, we can't hire people in October. We're just too busy. But mm-hmm. um, we really came out of the gate strong, and we've added a lot of cost. But, boy, I can already tell it's easier to run. We're on the right track. Our folks are doing the right things. Um, it's really energizing when you, when you get that. And honestly, with the pandemic and some of the growth of recent years, we had been hiring below the growth curve. And if you subscribe, if you do that, you'll certainly save costs. But boy, it's a lot of work and you'll burn your people out and it's not nearly as much fun. You did some pivots during the pandemic. Can you talk about those decisions and how you managed to keep, you know, it was tough to keep some manufacturing going if you weren't considered essential. So how did you get Alien Candles through that trying time? And then let's talk about where you're going. 
Great. Thank you. Um, thank you. So I, I like this story, and it's not just a story. It's a, it, it was, um, uh, I don't want to say a passion project because I don't want to minimize it. Mm-hmm. Um, so as a candle maker, home fragrance manufacturer, we don't often have the opportunity to, finger quote, save lives, mm-hmm. right? That's just not our business. Uh, and we try to make give give our people a sense of mission, and I have a sense of mission as well. But it's not often to say the mission is to you know, make more candles, right? The mission is to do other good things that are enabled by this business. So it was... I remember Friday the 13th, uh, the, uh, March 13th, 2020, and I was on my way down to Boston to have dinner with friends. And um, I was talking with another friend of mine who runs a factory in Lawrence, Mass. And he has a relationship, um, I shouldn't say a relationship, he has uh, people in China who work for him and do sourcing. And so he had known what was going on in China going back to January and February of 2020. And I called him and he said, I could tell he was like, he was almost out of breath, and he's um, uh, there's noise in the background. And I said, Jonathan, what's what's going on? He says, I'm in the cafeteria. We're moving all the tables around. We're putting up these shields. We're going to protect people. So I said, What are you talking about? He said, This is real. This is going to happen. He said, I'd be look. It's up to you. I'm out here. We're making changes right now. And I, I was like, Well, I'm going to dinner. <laughs> um, so of course I, I hang up and I'm like, I'm doing the wrong thing, right? I'm, I'm blind to this or I'm not taking this as seriously. So we came back the next week. We, we worked the week of March 16th. Um, and I remember the sense of discomfort as media were picking up over the weekend, right? People have more time to spend, um, spend, spend listening to what was going on in the news. We came back on Monday and keeping in mind, a lot of our people, if they don't work, they don't have a paycheck, mm-hmm. right? So really sensitive um, to, to shutting things down. Now, we, we had a gift in that we were already planning for a week shutdown because we had a software upgrade uh, there at the end of March. And in fact, I think that would have been the week of the 20, uh, week of the 30th we were planning to shut down. So it's the week of the 16th we're working. By Wednesday, and Wednesday morning, we had um, our monthly all-day management meeting. And I was completely turned out the first, first half of the day. And I was sketching on the back of an envelope, figuratively, I was sketching on my pad, how much was it going to cost to continue to pay people um, and guessing at that? So I, I sent a couple notes out of the room, uh, and they came back, and it was, I don't, know, I don't remember, now, it was like $300,000 or something a week to keep paying people. Um, and I said at noon, we broke the meeting. I said, guys, we got to stop. We're going to conclude this meeting. We need the two plant managers to stick around. We had two plants at the time. Um, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to make out the rest of the week. We're going to map out what we can deliver for customers. Here's what we're going to communicate. We'll run New Hampshire through Friday and Ohio through Saturday or vice versa, whatever it was. Mm. Um, but we're going to shut down. And we mapped out the rest of the day. We mapped out that communication plan. This was March 18th. And I believe it was Thursday afternoon, like the juncture between first and second shift, that we communicated this. And I was standing, we timed everything, so it was happened at the same time in Ohio as it did in New Hampshire. I was standing in the back of the manufacturing floor where this was being conveyed. And the plant manager said, this is dangerous, we, we're, we want you guys at home, um, we're going to shut down. And you could just feel the, the gut punch on everybody, they're like, like we're already taking a week of shutdown. Hmm. The people had made plans. Maybe they were taking PTO or whatnot. But you just felt the oxygen leave the room. Um, and I just stood there for a moment 
and there was a you know a pause, and the plan manager said, "But we're going to continue to pay you." And the cheers, you know, people just like <laughs> were shocked. You know, yeah. over here in the corner, they were translating it into Spanish for that group, uh, and people were just the relief in the room um, for for doing that. And I remember debating with our CFO. Uh, and he said, no, you got you to gotta save the money. I said, you know what, man, we're going to take a chance. And mm-hmm. I don't know how long we can do this, but we're going we're gonna to continue to pay people. Um, and we'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, within – and I probably had heard something, to be fair. I don't think I was clairvoyant, but I think I'd heard something that – and I was forming a belief that the government was going to have to step in mm-hmm. or we would be – you know, on the precipice of economic calamity that we'd never seen before. Right. And so I had a little bit of comfort that that was going to happen. Uh-huh. Um, so maybe I was positive bias. I was listening for that mm-hmm. in the media. But indeed, obviously, that's what happened. So we ended up bridging, all told, about three weeks before uh, PPP was obvious. Um, so, you know, it was a brief airball, mm-hmm. as, uh, as, as my banker likes to call it. <laughs> airball where there's no, nothing backing it. Um, but it was it was pretty uncomfortable. Um, so anyway, so that's that was that part of the story. The um, uh, I remember walking home that I didn't walk home. I walked to my car. I remember walking to my car. I think it was that Thursday. Maybe it was the Friday afternoon. No, it was Thursday afternoon. It was beautiful. It was sunny. It was warm. It's one of those days like not today uh, in March. And uh, walked to my car and I thought we did the right thing. But what do we do next? And so I, I kind of just let the anxiety rest that night, woke up the next morning, and I said, we, we got to do something. Well, it turns out one of our, uh, our lead engineer here in New Hampshire already had downloaded the uh, face shields, um, uh, bill, bill of Materials and Instructions from mm-hmm. the John, um, Johns Hopkins website. And so he had done this in parallel. I then said, oh, well, let's get our team together and figure out what we're going to do. Um, and basically we had... People, management, space, and you know maybe a th- thoughtful but bunch of professionals. But beyond that, we, we couldn't make alcohol because we're not explosion proof. Uh, we couldn't make a soap because we're not personal care. We're not uh, FDA approved. Mm-hmm. And I called around and had a few friends who were making face shields, or just starting to explore making face shields. So our supply chain group got on the horn um, right away started calling around. I put my name in with the, uh, the governor's office, and uh, one of the team, one of uh, Chris and Nunu's team members was just matching people. It was chaotic, but they mm. said, here's a guy in uh, up by Keene who makes plastic. Uh, I said, okay, and I need a elastic. And they said, okay, well, here's a guy in Littleton. Um, so, yeah, so I called these guys. It was Saturday night. I'm on the phone with a guy out in Keene saying, what kind of, what great plastic is it? like he's talking about all this stuff like I don't know I don't do plastic <laughs> right. um, I'm not plastic so I, I I need a face shield uh, ended up with a what was it Biddeford Maine there was a gentleman there who um, stamps plastic and he said uh, one of our supply chain people reached him he said if you guys make sh- face shields I'll stamp out ten thousand but you got to give and I'll give them to you. But you got to give me three thousand finished product back that I can give to my police and fire here in in uh, uh, in, in Maine. Wow. And so we said, done. Mm. So one of our one of our engineers got in her car, drove up to Biddeford, and she ended up making a trip almost every day because you can't use UPS at, the, at this time, right? Mm-hmm. The, everything stopped. Um, she drove up. She picked. She filled up her her car full of plastic. 
Um, I don't know how we got all the other supplies, but we ended up hand-to-mouth getting supplies and starting production of these face shields um, maybe 10 days later. Actually, probably 10 days from shutting down. I think it was that week, maybe it was the week of the 30th. Um, so keeping in mind that we had, we were paying people anyway. So we're like, oh gosh, what are we going to do? Because we're paying people. Are they going to come in and work? I'm not going to pay them twice. We talked about that. And I said, no, we can't pay them twice. Um, but we ended up putting out a call for volunteers. And we needed 20 people to come back and put these things together. Sure enough, we, we got 20 people to come in. We got some great publicity. Um, and we, we did those first 10,000. And then the question came, well, what do you do next? Well, the guy in Biddeford, I said, look, I'll continue to provide you plastic. I just can't give it to you anymore. So he said, okay. Um, and I spent about 24 hours thinking about how are we going to charge for this, mm. right? And the city of Boston had called us and said, we need 70000 I was like, 70000 Well, I can run the numbers. You can charge 10 bucks a piece and cost us, and we were figuring out it was a couple dollars to make. I said, mm-hmm. well, that's not bad business. So for, for about 24 hours, I thought about it. And then I woke up the next morning. I said, you're an idiot. What are you doing, right? Boston will find stuff. Right, the state of New Jersey will find stuff, but Dartmouth Hitchcock may not find stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, the nursing home up the street isn't going to find stuff. The Ohio Police and Firefighter Association for works in small towns. They're they're in trouble because they will not be able to economically compete with all these. So we decided at that point that we were going to continue producing. We'd buy the materials and we'd just give them away. Um, now in New Hampshire, we did deliveries around to different places. Eventually, we, we couldn't sustain it. We said, you come to us, and you, we'll give you a box of 50 of these things if you show up. And we limited it to first responders, medical initially, uh, and then eventually, you know, dentist office and other, others. But uh, we made 60,000 units. We gave them all away. Fantastic publicity. Employees felt great about it. Uh, we ended up, I said, we were worried about having people. We ended up with a, a waiting list uh, at both our factories in New Hampshire and Ohio, for people who wanted to come in and, and work on these. So, <laughs> so as, a, as a candle maker, you don't impact lives very often. But I remember I sent an email every day at around noon to all employees for eight weeks. And I'd, it was just to kind of stay connected, right? What's the anecdote? And I'd, get, I'd give them an anecdote. I'd talk about going for a walk. It's the snow's melt. I don't know. You got to come. It's eight yeah. weeks. That's a lot of content. Yeah. Um, but I also said, you know, we probably, if you run the numbers, we probably saved we could have saved thousands of lives here mm-hmm. because we prevented people from getting sick. And yeah. that's just, uh, you know, even now that's something people, people still talk about internally. I'm so glad that, so, so glad that we, we decided to do that. That's amazing. That's amazing. This whole story is, is amazing. Um, and so now you're continuing, obviously got back to candle making, yeah. but, mm-hmm. um, so, but you're continuing to grow. You, you said that you've added a third manufacturing facility that isn't focused on candles. So talk to us about where you're at, what you're doing, and, and what does that mean moving forward for your, the future of this company? Yeah, thank you. So um, we proved some things internally in creating this new factory that we could do more than candles. We, we actually, it's, a, it's an automated facility, not rocket ship automated, just you know, <laughs> incrementally automated. Sure. But uh, it's a high volume output with the product we're making. That was a skill that we wanted to, uh, to make sure we had and, and could, could deploy again. Um, now that we've done that, we're, you know, we feel like, eh, as I said earlier, it's all, it's all part of the journey. Um, and the journey for us is, you know, 
creating a good culture. Um, there's always improvement to do, making a good place for our people, getting the right folks on the bus. Um, that's where we are. And the question is, can we continue to do that in new areas? So maybe that means we do explore something new that we haven't done before. Mm-hmm. We have active work on that. Does it mean that we find a business that looks like a lean in 2008 and invite them to uh, join us on, on, on this journey, mm-hmm. especially if there's a good cultural fit? We, there are companies like that. Sure. Um, I think that's a uh, very interesting next set of steps for us. And awesome. remind me again what you're making at the new f- facility. It's the – if you plug in – you. It, we would call them a electric diffuser bulbs, oh, okay. but you plug them into an outlet and they, they run all the time. And uh, how's that business going? We continue to be very lucky. Uh, very, <laughs> very fortunate. Good, good. Uh, but people, you know, it's a home fragrance. So yeah. uh, folks who are at home uh, want, want things to smell good if, if, if that's where they're spending time. It's true. Well, I think this whole, this whole thing smells good to me. And, um, Rod, really, really uh, appreciate your spending some time with us telling the story of, uh, of the business, of the pivots, the history, all of it. Um, you are absolutely an entrepreneur and a strategist and absolutely a conscious leader. I can just tell from the way that, you, that you've held yourself today and, and talked about your, your team and, and what you've done. So thank you for being who you are, as it were, and of course, joining us here in BizCast today. Thanks so much. Thank, thank you, guys. It's been fun. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed the stories and information you heard on today's podcast, find more by subscribing to Business NH Magazine or visiting businessnhmagazine.com. I'm Matt Mowry. And I'm Nathan Carroll. BizCast NH is a production of Granite Media Group. Mm-hmm.